The following episode contains an interview regarding a historical U.S. naval tragedy. We have taken great strides to be very respectful of the subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to friends, folks, and neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, because what you're about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show! Prepare yourself for pop culture, commentary, and interviews featuring no drama and no controversy, guaranteed. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Productions Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Welcome to episode 21 of the Derek Duvall Show, and welcome to all the new listeners who have hit the subscribe button. Also, and this is kind of cool, Per Transistor FM, as of this morning, we have finally broken into the country of France. So allow me to say, Bien vu no donne Michillon, et cher de use batter du rugby le prochain faqua pays de gales se recontrier. Viva la France. Now that I've done that, allow me to set the stage for episode 21. Believe me when I say I've been looking forward to this episode for forever. So... A few months back, I was having a discussion with a gentleman at my cigar club, and we were discussing my expertise in the Second World War. We started talking about the closing weeks of the Pacific Theater, and I brought up the story of the ill-fated USS Indianapolis. He was unaware of the story, so I did my best to do the tale justice. That's when inspiration struck, and we decided we must get an Indianapolis survivor on the show to tell their story. We were fortunate to speak with... Kim Roller, who is the admin for the All Things USS Indianapolis page and is also an honorary survivor. She was incredibly helpful in securing an hour with Mr. Dick Thalen, who is 94 and one of seven living survivors. He was incredibly gracious of giving me his time. And believe me when I say this is one of the most important moments and tests the Derek Duvall show has ever been a part of. Today's release has also been timed to align with July 30th, which marks the 76th anniversary of the sinking. So, going forward, there'll be no commercials or promotions for products on this episode, and what you are about to hear is honest, brutal, but most important of all, it's inspiring. So let's get right into it. Please welcome to the show, direct from Lansing, Michigan, survivor of the late USS Indianapolis, Mr. Dick Thalen. Dick, welcome to the show. This is indeed, for me, a great honor. And from one U.S. Navy sailor to another, I say welcome. Welcome. Thank, thank you. I start off my first question, the same as all the others. How has it been uh, living in the COVID world? Have you been navigating it okay? Yeah. It's uh, kind of a hurt, hurts it. Everybody's feeling by staying home, but you got to put up with it. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and take it back to the beginning a little bit. Um, I have to ask, what was it like growing up in Michigan during the Depression? Well, my dad, mother, my dad had a job, but didn't pay that much. And, you know, he worked, he pulled ice for a last night some fuel. He had a two-man shop that worked 24 hours a day. He worked 12 hours a day, seven days a week back then, just to make a living. But I can remember that the way we ate, for example, my mother would buy a beef roast, 
But I'm making sure that she just got weighed half of it. So the next morning or the next day, we had to make hash out of it. And so many little things, what clothes you had to wear. And we kept the heat down in different parts of the house. And uh, I was pretty small when it was all going on. But I can remember some of the things that my parents went through. So as you got older, what inspired you to join the Navy? Well, okay. I had friends of mine that was getting old, a little older than I am. That was getting friends that had to go in the Army or something. So to get in the Navy, you had to join the Navy two or three months in advance and for dad's permission. So I wanted to get, get in the Navy. And a lot of people ask me this, what do you want to join the Navy for? I said, I'd like to be around water. But I guess I got too much. <laughs> so, so anyhow, uh, that's how I got in. I, I enjoyed it. I still like still like to be around water. I was on a swimming team in high school, and I it's one of those things that uh, I was lucky to get through it. I remember when um, I was uh, I decided to join the Navy and. They have the recruiters, you know, it's like, join the Navy, see the world. And I'm like, oh, all right, yeah, all right, this sounds like fun. Yeah. They, they neglect to tell you that the world is 68% water. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you were 18, I believe, when you arrived on USS Indianapolis. What was it like to see the ship for the first time? Oh, God. It was real. We went to Hunters Point, San Francisco, and then we got in the bus and went over there to the ship. And as the bus came up next to the ship, in dry dock it was, and just a huge. I I just can't big, you know, fiberglass being being on a ship like that. But for the ship is a dry dock, so we lived in barracks for about two months. So we went on the ship. But I was lucked out that when when we I was in living in barracks, uh, I had to be go board the ship every day. What the deal was. Is a, any civilian welder on the ship had to have Navy personnel with him with a fire extinguisher. So this guy hooked onto him, and I did this for about two and a half months. It was that was real good duty, excellent duty. So uh, it was real easy because he had a fire extinguisher, but uh, there was no fire. He was where he was welding. There's no place to get any kit fire. So it was real good duty. That's awesome. I remember the first time I saw my aircraft carrier, and it was just your entire peripheral, your entire vision is just steel, <clears throat> haze gray steel. And I, I that's something I'll never forget to the day I die, just the, the first time I saw my ship. After dry dock, uh, where were you exactly assigned on the ship, and what were the living conditions like on that vessel? Well, where I was assigned is uh, lower deck in uh, any area. It was for Benkai. Of course, you really didn't spend much time there. Well, I'm when you're on out to sea, you had four hours on guard, guard duty. Then you had eight hours off. In that eight hours, you had to eat, sleep, take a shower, write a letter, and get some sleep. So everybody thinks eight hours is quite a while, but it is to accomplish all that. But it was a good duty. And, uh, they had no complaints at all about that part of it. It's I was funny. a twenty millimeter gun on on uh, on GQ, but what I did on ship is that that was it was more or less four hours watch, eight hours off, it was round the clock, twenty four hours a day. 
and lots of time you had different times, different hours to watch. You mentioned writing letters. I have always wanted to know, what was the turnaround time from writing a letter to getting one back? I really can't tell you. <laughs> I really can't tell you. Oh. I know at one time I was at a stadium. I wrote some letters to a, a friend of mine and also my dad and mother. And they, all, they cut holes in it. In words, where I was talking about the ship being sunk. That's when I was in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was the wrong thing to write down because when they got some cut, cut, cut parts of the letter, it was much of a letter left. Put that mm-hmm. way. On the 16th of July, 1945, uh, Indianapolis left San Francisco for what is known now as one of the most top secret missions in history, which was delivering the major components for the first atomic bomb to be used in warfare. What was the mood of the crew when it came on board? And were there like guesses as to what the cargo might have been? Well, no one knew really what it was. Whole thing, uh, I sat in the fan tail a few times from a guy, and the ship would do about 28, 29 knots. We set a speed record between the United States and Tinian. And we just, in other words, it's still in existence. And everybody kept saying, what the hell's our hurry? In other words, we traveled before real fast, but not that long, for nine days, we had the ship wide open. And everybody's wondering what we, must have been in that box, because the Marine was on it, got over it for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, watching us. But uh, some of the guys were saying, what it is is is, uh, toilet paper, a set of toilet paper for MacArthur. That was a joke. (laughs) (laughs) I believe I I read this almost like one-third of the world's known um, uranium was on board that ship. No one knew that at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the mechanism bomb, I mean, a big part of the bomb was in... uh, in the hangar deck, and I stood muster every day right there within, let's say, 40, 30 feet of the of a bomb. Mm-hmm. So I saw, but the, the mechanism of the bomb was up in the officers' quarters in the room. There was on that little room I seen was two, two men on 24 hours a day. No one, whatever's in that box or in that room, nobody was touching. That's that's awesome. That's for wow. sure. Crazy, crazy. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, arriving in Tinian, the atomic bomb offloaded, and the ship was ordered to Leyte. What was the crew told about heading that direction? You guys, were you, was it for training or was it for a mission? We went to Guam to get fuel and uh, supplies. There, we were asked to go to Leyte to join us to, to join the Seventh Fleet for the invasion of Japan. That was the intention to go there. Oh, wow. Of course, we were we were supposed to get uh, training. At six o'clock Tuesday morning, when we got there late, but mm-hmm. but we didn't show up. So that's yeah. when something. Uh, that's another big story all by itself. Yeah, let's get to that. Now. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, 15 minutes after midnight on the 30th of July, a Japanese submarine launched a spread of torpedoes and struck the Indianapolis twice. Where were you on the ship when it got hit, and what was your immediate response to the explosions? I was sleeping at topside because it was hot, too hot below that. But the second night I did that. We'd take a Navy blanket and sew it halfway up, make a little sleep bag on it. And take our clothes and use them for a pillow and lay in that sleep bag and sleep topside. And use our clothes and our shoes for a pillow. 
Hey, I would have said blew up. I laid down about quarter to 12 because my uh, friend I supposed to take over on the watch, twin 20s up on the bow. He was supposed to wake me up a quarter to four to go on watch. So I laid down about quarter to 12 after I had coffee. And then a quarter after 10 after 12, which is about 20 minutes, the ship blew up. So I went up in the air, and I can't tell you from what, two feet or 20 feet. I really don't know. I know I moved over about 10 to 15 feet from the edge of the ship because I, when I picked myself up, I had a cable, that, little walk cable that goes on the outside of the ship. I had a whole one of them. But I was lucky that I wasn't blown off the ship, you know, when I first got torpedoed. Twelve minutes um, later, the ship rolled over and sank, uh, taking a good portion of the crew with it. What do you remember from abandoning the ship? When I got organized, my me and I don't know, eight, ten, twelve of us, we went aft to go to our gen- general quarters. But well, we couldn't go to general quarters because the quarter deck was a gulf of flames. You couldn't cross it. So we went forward again, and by that time, the ship was listening pretty good to the starboard side. So man had a knife, and he, we cut down three or four uh, life rafts off the gun, and it's gun tours right there. Mm-hmm. And behind the gun tours, they had big canvas bags of life jackets. I'm lucky to get a life jacket. By that time, the ship was decent, pretty good to the starboard side. It was so, listened so much that I just couldn't, couldn't stand on it no more because you slipped down. Everybody asked me, where was you on the ship when you jumped off? I didn't jump off the ship. The ship left me. Mm-hmm. At that time, I just swam away, and not too far away, and the ship went on like a great big bobber. Each time it would go down a little further, and uh, all at once the last plunge, I, you know, I talked to people who was closer than I was, that it was just going down real slow. There was no afterdraft on there. I have a question I've, I've always been curious of is, was the ship, I mean, was it, was it making groaning noises? Was it, or did it just go down very silently? It was made, no, make groaning noise. It, what it was is, uh, they tell me, is, is compartments are flying apart mm-hmm. as it's going down. What, what was the temperature of the water, do you think, when you uh, first hit it? Well, I can't tell you the exact temperature. All I know is every day we were out there, it was so hot. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying to you is we have hot. And the di- nighttime, it caused some of it down. It was real cold. That was, it took you a few, quite a few minutes at nighttime to get your body adjusted to the cold. And when you got it all adjusted for the cold, then the sun would come up again. Mm-hmm. So they tell me the temperature was from 90 to 100 degrees. Over 1,100 men went into the water, some with life jackets, few with rafts and other debris, some even covered in oil. That first night, what do you remember most? It's hard to remember what you really saw. All I know is I'm sorry we made trouble because uh, it was dark, of course, and we rode eight to 10 foot swells for, for about a day, and that night included. So, of course, when I got daylight, then you start seeing guys around you. But what your line of thought is, what am I, I going to do now? How am I going to get out of this? You know, but mm-hmm. there was no, there was no, no answer. 
How many men were in the group with you that first day? I'd say, oh, 50 to 100. See, it's hard to tell, really, because with the eight foot one swells, either you're going up or down in these waves. So you only can see the people, uh, you know, on the high side of the waves when you're up there. So very limited. As as the days progressed, you had different groups you was in and out of. There was uh, people was because you. What we picked up, I don't know if you know, we were two miles wide by 12 to 14 miles long. Mm-hmm. That's hard to believe, but they said that we there's currents out there. And you get one of those currents and away you go. Plus, everybody had, some of them had different type of flotation. Oh, nets, uh, just K-pop life jackets, rafts. I know those K-pop life jackets were not rated for, I think it's what, two days, maybe? Yeah, 72 hours they're rated for, and I had mine 114. Wow. But I had parts of three. That Wow. I, I, took, I took one off a dead person, and one went floating by. If I didn't have parts of three, I wouldn't live today. How did the group pass the time? I mean, did, did you guys talk about things like where are you from, what do you do, and stuff like that? Was, was there at uh, least some sort of... Uh, yes, a little bit of it. My friend Terry was right next to me. We were in the water, and we made a vow in the water, him and I. If I couldn't make it home, he's going to talk to my parents. Mm-hmm. If he couldn't make it, he talked to his mother. If something happened to his dad, I really don't know. They wouldn't tell me. Anyhow, that's up to him. And uh, so we might have made an agreement. And, of course, uh, Terry was uh, taken by a shark. Anyhow, uh, about six months later, I can tell you a story about it. I went down and seen his mother down in Hartford City, Indiana. And uh, we had quite a conversation. I spent overnight down there down to see him. There have been harrowing accounts of the years from other survivors. Um, the next few days, there was dehydration, exposure to the elements, obviously, like you said. And it's been well documented. A good portion of survivors were taken by sharks or by drinking the, the ocean salt water. As those days passed and there were no signs of rescue, do you recall what was going through your head? And Yeah, we, we talked about different things in the water a little bit, but not much. It's just a matter of uh, going in and out of consciousness. Because you can't stay awake that long. You pass out, you go into a sleep mode, different nights. For example, one time, or in fact, not three or four times, uh, I was in kind of a sleep mode, and I felt something poking my life jacket. Well, it was a nose of a shark. What I'm saying, and the reason they didn't attack me, I found out later, they cannot smell the stand, the smell of diesel fuel. And I was saturated with it. So these are for saying my life. It's it's amazing. Uh, uh, that's, wow. Yeah, a lot I, of people I, didn't know that. No, I really don't know that either. That's actually incredible to to learn. Wow. Um, I am curious. Uh, if rescue had not come, how much longer do you think you, you the guys could have survived out there? Oh, we, we wouldn't have survived very long because they picked me up sometime at, oh, one, two o'clock Friday morning. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we'd have lived much into Friday day. We were our last straw. Mm-hmm. For example, when uh, they dropped rafts in the water uh, Thursday afternoon at probably five so six o'clock, I was going to that raft, me and three other guys. 
and talk to the food or something. Like, hey, Al, I got partway to the raft, and two of the guys are heart stopped along the way. I shook them, they were gone. My friend Terry was taken by a shark, and I, I, and I finally got to the raft. And I got to the raft, the guys were on the raft, probably four, five, six, I forgot. They didn't have enough strength to pull me on the raft, and I didn't have enough strength to get on the raft. And I never did get on the raft. So I tied myself to the raft uh, Thursday afternoon to Friday morning. I stayed in the water. Kind of a story by itself. <laughs> as we, as you mentioned, um, by a miracle on the fifth day, a uh, PV-1 flown by Lieutenant Chuck Gwynn spotted members of the crew in the water and proceeded to amazingly ditch the plane to pick up survivors. What were your memories of that moment of actually being rescued? And what, and what kind of shape were you in when you were pulled out? Oh, God. Well, the Doyle came. He got there a little after midnight, one, two o'clock, something like that. And that's when they started picking up uh, survivors. And the shape we was in, I was so weak. I, I was, I, they dropped a rope ladder, which is probably only about 10 foot. And I thought I'd grab a hold of that ladder and crawl up. And I, I couldn't. Two men got in the water and more or less boosted me up. I had my, my on my shoulder. And then two for the top side was pulling me up. In other words, like I wasn't noodle, I, I wasn't worth nothing. I got up on, on the ship. And I thought I'd just walk away, but I could. I fell right down. I couldn't stand up. My uh, legs are all weak, cramped, you name it. Of the 1,100 men that were shipwrecked, 316 survived and were pulled out of the water. What do you remember from being taken to the hospital? Oh, well, well the Doyle pictures, of course, we went to the hospital shortly afterwards. When I, I passed out on the Doyle sometime. I don't remember anybody taking me off the Doyle. I was unconscious. And when I got into the hospital in Palilu, uh, some corpsman or doctor, whoever, the foot on my bed, and he said to me, "Oh, you're back among us." That was I passed out, and I don't remember anything. How many hours? I can't tell you how long it took. But I, I come to, and of course they started giving me liquids and juice. I kept feeling a little better. But uh, when they took us off the island, played They took us to Guam. Some landing barge come in, took us. Anyhow, we was in all bad shape then. Uh, and the Doyle picked up 86 survivors. I don't know if you know that. No, I didn't so know that. Few of them. And they picked all the ones off the airplane. Mm-hmm. There was a plane, the seaplane that landed. They picked up a stragglers and they picked them off the airplane. I understand it was 56 they took off the airplane. It's amazing. Is Even when we know this story is true, it's it's so... It's so unbelievable that something like this could have actually happened. It's, it's, it's just, it takes your breath away. It really does. Oh, yeah. It really does. Well, there are five things, young man, I got to tell you about. Is we set a speed record between the United States and Tidian, which is nine days and they still don't exist today. We took the first atomic bomb over to Tidian. It was the first time in the history of the Navy. The cavalry and car march over laws of ship. That has never happened before. It hasn't happened since. And, there, and the biggest thing is how many men lost on that ship? 
which is 860, 80, pardon me. And there's more men lost on that ship and one sinking than the history of the Navy in wartime. Everybody questions the Arizona, but Arizona is an hour or two before the war. It was 1440. And also, the Navy Department told us guys that nobody spent any more time in a life jacket than we did. We set a record, which is four days or five nights. I said, is it true that you were not allowed to talk about the sinking directly after you were rescued? Yeah, it's true. Yeah. They don't want to get into secrets. I mean, I really don't know why, but it did. What do you remember um, when it was announced that Japan had surrendered and uh, the war was over? Oh, God, that was, uh, oh, I'd say the first bomb was up August the 6th, the second, August the 9th, you know, August the 15th, the war was over. So that's why I look at the way out of the process of being transferred from from Plato to Guam at that time. With the loss of the Indianapolis and the resulting inquiries that were determined to be a combination of many problems, some with distress signals being sent and being ignored and Guam not listening to Indianapolis ever do, uh, naval inquiries shouldered the blame on some, but the majority of it was shifted to Captain McVeigh in a court-martial. What do you remember hearing about that verdict when it came down? Well, it wasn't, wasn't right to start with because of uh, I've talked to Navy captains for a long time a- after that, and there was no way that they could get uh, that uh, trial together in a, in a short period of time. The, the, the ship was on July 30th, in August, or December 3rd, that the trial started, which is a real short period of time. And they did everything they could to make the Navy look good. For example, they called the, the officer and the captain of the submarine over here to testify against our captain. When he got through talking, I got papers here to show you, that he got through talking, he was on the captain's side. And he openly said, if it would never happened in my country because of the loss of a ship, it be court martial. It never happened. In other words, they were trying to blame somebody for the loss of the ship. And Captain McVeigh was a fall pedal. He was railroad and there was nothing, you know, too bad, but that's what it is. After the war, how did you transition back to civilian life? And uh, was the trauma from the sinking something you talked to others about? Okay. I went back. I, I finished high school. And after I got out of there, I went to work the shop for a little while. That didn't suit me. So now I got a chance to drive a truck. I drove a truck for 44 years for a living after that's story all by itself is you know, I'm going to tell you something if you hard for you to believe my, my wife and I were married in 1951 and we had the first book come out in 1958 that's the words first word she knew about in seven years of marriage I didn't say one word to her about the ship she didn't know nothing about it she didn't know any name of the ship there was I didn't talk to nobody about it a lot of people can't comprehend that, but uh, I did. 1975, obviously, Spielberg released the film Jaws, and the world was captivated, obviously, by the story that was told about uh, the character being an Indianapolis survivor. Were you shocked at how the world learned about that event being an actual reality? And what about the attention that the incident 
received, all that newfound attention? Well, too much emphasis on the size. I can't tell you how many died. No one can tell you. But there's a lot of them didn't die by sharks. They just died. I've seen men uh, take their life jacket off and go down and grow over that and get a drink of water, cold water. Well, you drink seawater on an empty stomach, bug your bug or your air, eye or bug out, foam will come to your mouth, and you're to go totally insane within an hour or two. Mm-hmm. Most people don't know that. And that's why some of them died. I tried to talk with a few of the men not to do that, but they did it and they, they, they passed away. In other words, there's a lot of different ways of dying out there, but sharks is just one of them. I remember um, when I was in boot camp, part of the Blue Jackets manual is do not drink seawater. Uh, hold out at all cost. That's right. That's right. Because yeah. yeah. they'll do it. Yeah. So over the years, uh, the remaining crew, you've had reunions. What What are your best memories from those reunions? Well, see, I, I'm on the original organizing committee for the reunion. And we started talking, the first reunion was 1960. And we had two meetings, 58 and 59. But it was a good deal because a lot of us were wanted to see each other. And uh, it was, there was, Two real close friends of mine, and or survived or sinking, and at the reunion, including our wives, and was sick. It was like glue. It was we met every time together. Loved to see each other. Eric Anderson from California, and Joe Jumont, Jackamont from New Jersey. They were good friends of mine. But they would come to the reunion and really enjoy each other. Mm-hmm. And not just that. There's a lot of other things. The reunion helped us get some books, monuments, statues, you name it. How many of the original crew are left as of today? Seven. Seven. Mm-hmm. Yep. I don't know two of them. They're from California, I understand. They've never been to reunions, and I heard they're not too good a shape. The ones I do know is... Uh, Everybody caught so young. I was only 17 when this all happened, 18. Anyhow, I'm the old man. <laughs> I was born in March. My buddy's born in uh, uh, June. And a friend of mine was born in August, all the same year. So I'm the old man. There was great pressure by the crew of the Indianapolis to clear the name of Captain McVeigh of any wrongdoing that led to the sinking. When... President Clinton signed the resolution. What What were your thoughts on that? What did, What do you remember thinking the most? It was a long time coming. Myself and my wife, my wife, we went, we went to Washington D.C. twice to stomp the floor of Congress to, to get this bill through. We worked on it for years to try to get it through. We after every reunion, we tried to get the cabinet get out of it, and finally. President Clinton signed it in 1990. What I'm saying to you, we worked on the captains uh, for 30 years. We finally got it through. Mm -hmm. It sounds a little ridiculous, but we did it. It does not, trust me. Uh, I've I've dealt with with the Navy sometimes. Red tape, it's... The Navy doesn't like to admit it's wrong sometimes. It's been my experience. You know, (laughs) it's, it's, it's... it's like even overturning a conviction. It's it just it's the the people who 
work to to put it in place. Don't like to be proven wrong. So yeah, um, the ship was lost in 1945, and thanks to the efforts of uh, Microsoft's Paul Allen, the wreckage was located in 2017. What do you remember when you were told that the ship had been found? Oh, I got a real strange feeling. To me, and I talked to different people on the reunion about about the subject, and it was just like the doors closed. In other words, that was the story's over. In other words, uh, incomplete. When they found it, mm-hmm. uh, it was. And each reunion, the, the men would show up for, for about ten years. Different men, they were going to go find the ship, and they said they were. For the last time a man told me that, we're going to find this. He said, well, we're going to find it this time, Dick, because we've got uh, a technical uh, gear that we're going to find it. Mm-hmm. And it did, which is good. It took them 70 years to find the Titanic. So, I mean, like I said, it's looking for a needle in a stack of needles, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, I don't know if, you, if you've known this or not. I, I've, I've spoke um, with someone earlier. I actually met Eugene Morgan back in 2001 when I was in the Navy, uh, he was, um, it was, we were doing fleet week in Seattle and he had got on um, the ship and gone from Everett to Seattle for fleet week. And I got to spend some time with him. Um, like, like you, like one hell of a story, you know, and, and it, was, yeah. it was a real pleasure of a man to meet. I know him real well. He was a bugler aboard the ship. He was, he was a really, really, really great man. I, I, he had a, um, Indianapolis cruise jacket on the back. That's how I spotted him. And yeah. knowing my, I mean, obviously like you, I study history. I knew exactly what was going on. And I spoke to him for about an hour, hour, hour and a half. And he was just the nicest, nicest man. Yeah, I know. Him. I know him real well. Yeah. All right. So I have one last question that I ask all my guests as we conclude this interview. And it's this, if the entire population of the planet was listening to this interview, what would be the one thing that you would like to say to the people of Earth? Oh, boy. Well, the biggest thing I've been saying in a lot of schools and different places and everything else, my favorite slogan is never give up. You don't realize how many times, not just me, but the rest of us, that we could give up. I could have, okay, it'd be easier to die out there than it was to stay alive. You really had to work at it to stay alive. So that was the big thing is, you know, the Navy screwed up on it so bad and one of those things. That, if that's not inspiring, I don't know what is. All right. <laughs> Dick, thank you ever so much for doing this interview, coming on the show. This is definitely one of the highlights of my life. And I'll never forget <laughs> this. I'm not going to lie to you. I, I will not forget this or you or, or any of it. This is This has truly, truly been an honor for me. Okay, thank you. And that brings episode 21 to a close. I have no words to describe how hearing that story made me feel while engaging in it, and I hope that you, Duval Nation, have been moved as well. As of this release, uh, it's important to note two other Indianapolis survivors have passed away, which now brings the total to five left. I want to thank Kim Roller for setting this all up for us. She is a real rock star in all this, and we owe her a great debt of gratitude. Coming up in the next couple of weeks, we have some great interviews with other incredible people. And of course, I cannot wait for you all to meet them. They are so great. But I want to say this, and I thought about this a lot. 
Before I leave you, I want to ask a favor from you, Duval Nation. The number of World War II veterans are dwindling rapidly. If you still know one, and they are willing to talk about it, record their story somehow. Those stories give a human face to the horrors of the Second World War, and they need to be cherished and preserved. So on that note, I want to leave you with a quote I discovered recently. I've been doing a lot of reading of famous quotes. There was a famous Frenchman, and now you were seeing a coincidence, I think not, who had a great deal to do with the Olympic Games, which are currently going on right now as of this recording. His name was Pierre de Coubertin, and it goes like this. The important thing in the Olympic Games is not to win, but to take part. The important thing in life is not the triumph, but the struggle. The essential thing is not to have conquered, but to have fought well. I don't know if that means anything to you, but it kind of stuck to me. I, I really liked it. So on that note, Duval Nation, Nosta, God bless, and see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duval Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvalShow.com, for the latest news on downloads and to explore past episodes. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Derek Duval Show.